No. It's nuts. Even torturing you is boring. This is the small council. Hey guys, welcome back to Small Council Radio, the bonus segment that I have going, the Watchers on the Wall, where we're going to be basically gearing this towards newer players. Uh, we're going to go into some things like the rule book, and then we'll transition into game modes. A lot of the things we're trying to do here, they're essentially geared towards new or newer players, but again, as I mentioned in the last episode, some veterans will even find it beneficial to review some of this stuff because we explain some interesting interactions and some things. It, it never hurts to brush up on it. Uh, as Luke and I went through it, I think he and I even realized a couple of things that we hadn't before. So at any rate, I have with me uh, Mr. Luke again, UF Nationals 2022 champion, uh, Mr. Luke Stark. I mean, you, <laughs> well, you're actually cool with South, but <laughs> yeah. you're kind of South, but we'll go with that. You're you're the Stark man. The, uh, so uh, super happy to have you on again. Um, I think we decided that as we went through the rule book the last time, we ended on page 17, which means that we need to start with page 18. Uh, is there anything you can think of that you wanted to go backwards on and touch, or are we ready to jump into it? Yeah, I think we can definitely say for sure that, you know, you're not allowed to move through an enemy unit. Uh, well, it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not explicit in there. It's it's only permissive for friendly units. So uh, if anyone was All confused right. on that, I hope I didn't uh, steer anybody wrong. I I think... I think it's all right. I think we straightened it out. I, I had to go back and do some looking, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I didn't just know it myself, but it's okay. I think that was our maybe our only hiccup from that last episode, so we're ready to point mm-hmm. them in the right, all in the right direction this time, right? Yes, for sure. So we're starting on page 18 with combat bonuses. There are various bonuses that a unit can gain when attacking, primarily based on whether it charged and which line of sight arc it is attacking its target into. So we start with the charge bonus. So I'm not going to read this exactly, but um, the charge bonus is essentially when you successfully charge, if it's not disorderly, which we talked about last week or on the last episode, you will be able to uh, reroll any attack dice for that attack. Um, The note here is that while many abilities and effects might trigger from charges, charge bonus specifically refers only to the aforementioned reroll. And there's an exclamation point. So the reason that that is in there, I've heard it asked a number of times, and I'm sure you have as well, Luke, um, with something like Lance Cavalry. We've got several units now that carry lances. Uh, it, it's confusing for some newer players, particularly those that come from a different gaming system like Warhammer, where the lances give the plus two strength on the charge. And I think it's explained as a charge bonus for those lances. Uh, the important thing to note here is even if you're disorderly, um, this charge bonus will still apply. Um, or this, the lance bonus will still apply. That is not a charge bonus. It's not, it's not affiliated with the charge um, at all other than, oh, my God, I'm stumbling over myself. 
No, but the you're, actually, you're right. Yeah, any any ability that would trigger off of a charge, you still get. Even if you roll a one and you're disorderly, or you go through hindering terrain that takes away your charge bonus, it specifically only means the reroll. Yes, thank you for stopping me from stumbling over myself. That we all that we, we all knew where you were going. <laughs> that's the point we wanted to make. So, uh, moving on into the flank attacks, when a unit makes a melee or ranged attack, which is important. Um, while in the flank arc of an enemy, that enemy suffers an additional minus one to defensive dice rolls, as well as a minus one to their panic test roll. So uh, this is not strictly when charging, which is another thing that I've seen some people confused about. Uh, they ask, okay, after I make my charge, I'm still attacking in the flank. Do they still suffer the minus one, or is that only on the turn that I charge them? And, and the answer is that that flank bonus applies all the time. Yeah, absolutely correct. And, and it, same thing for the next bonus, which is the rear bonus. Uh, when a unit makes a melee or a ranged attack in the rear arc of an enemy, they suffer minus two to defense dice rolls and a minus two to their panic dice roll. Yep. And it's important to note, as always, that um, it, this, is, this applies to ranged as well. So getting ranged shots into the flank is very, very devastating. So as you're mm -hmm. getting into the positioning side of the game, as you get get into that, you, it, you definitely don't ever want to give your flank to an enemy charging, but it can also be nearly as devastating to be shot in the flank. So just keep that in mind. So moving into morale test rules, many effects call for a unit to make a morale test. When a unit makes a morale test, it rolls two dice. If the combined result is equal to or higher than the unit's morale stat, they've passed the test. Otherwise, they have failed each effect that causes a morale test will list what happens on a pass or a failure. So the thing that I like about this game is it's interesting because I, I think we discussed it a little bit last week. There's never an instance in this game where you want to roll low. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. if like you're afraid of a retribution effect or something, which can be a thing um, mentioning the aforementioned charge bonus, it is optional to reroll your attack dice. So I charged the direwolf shaggy dog with my conscripts i had a feeling that i wouldn't be able to kill him with the conscripts even if they got you know four or five hits and all it would have done was made him stronger so in that instance i actually only scored two hits and i opted not to reroll. um so this is kind of a case where you don't want to roll high because i wanted to stop him from charging me but i also wanted to do as little damage as possible so here i was hoping that i rolled Poorly, but that's a very niche situation. For the most part, you want to roll high because your defense dice, your morale, your attack dice, all of these things benefit from higher rolls. Yeah, completely agree. Okay. Panic test. The most common type of morale test a unit will be forced to make is a panic test. That probably still is true, although we do have many, many more morale test effects in this version of the game than we had in previous ones. Uh, but the panic test is still the most common. Panic tests normally happen after units attack, but there, but many other effects can cause them as well. And that's true because there are cards that can trigger a panic test. There's the NCU like Roos who can replace any zone with forcing a panic test. There's the crown zone on the tactics board. So you're going to find that there's a number of ways that you're forced to take a panic test. When you make a panic test, you roll the 2d6 dice and the d3 die and compare the combined D6 to its morale stat as explained above. If it passes, nothing happens um, other than whatever you can trigger, cards you can trigger off of passing a morale test. 
On a failure, however, you will suffer the result of the D3 in wounds. And similar to wounds that we discussed in the last episode, they're ignoring all defense. So they're direct damage to the unit. Also note that if an ability or effect would allow any dice to be rerolled during a panic test, that includes the D3 die as well. So that's important for your own rerolls that you might get from cards. If, if you've rolled max damage on the panic test and you're rolling, you're playing a card or something that allows you to reroll, you're more than likely going to want to reroll that D3 to reduce that damage. Yep. And I have a couple of things to add onto this. So, there are many abilities in the game that will increase your odds to roll for a morale test. They'll either increase your morale stat or they'll increase your rolls for a panic test. Any increase to your morale stat, let's say like the ability stalwart, um, it's also an increase to your morale whenever you're taking a panic test, right? All panic tests are morale tests, but not all morale tests are panic tests. Some morale tests, um, like subjugation of power will have your unit take a morale test with with uh just based on their morale stat to see if they lose their abilities for the turn um so but if there is an ability that gives you plus one to panic test uh like say iron resolve that does not affect any normal morale test one of the best uh examples i can think of is drogo in blood riders Drogo comes with Iron Resolve, which is plus one to, to panic tests and minus one damage from panic tests. And the unit of Blood Riders has the ability War Cry, so they can take a morale test to put tokens on an enemy. His ability, Iron Resolve, for the plus one to panic test, does not affect their morale test role for War Cry. Yep, and it's a really good point. Um, that's a that's a really nice talking point there. It's very important to remember that. And you said it perfectly. Every panic test roll is a morale test. Every morale test is not a panic test. So there mm-hmm. are situations where an ability like Iron Resolve will not work. So I don't remember if I discussed this in the last version or if it came up or not. But while we're talking about modifiers, because panic tests tend to be the ones that get the most modification, right? Mm-hmm. Um Number one, and first of all, let's point out that in this game, there is no, there's no situation where Snake Eyes is an auto failure. There's not a situation where Boxcars is an auto pass either. You can be in an incident where your morale is negated so much that no matter what you roll, you're going to fail. And the reason for that is when you're doing these modifications, it's really important to keep this little tidbit in mind. What you're doing is you're taking every modifier, plus and minus, and you're adding them together. You're going to either come up with a positive number or a negative number, and that is the final morale modifier. So you can get into a trapping, again, thinking back to a game like Warhammer, where those bonuses did not just affect your dice roll, they improved your statistics. So when a unit gets plus one to a defense, to a morale roll, for example, um, you're affecting the outcome of the dice. So the way to think about that is your morale stat is six, but you're rolling with a plus one. If you roll a five on the dice, you're adding plus one to that roll, making it become a six. You're not turning your morale into morale five. That's very important to note because of things like um, rally point. Rally point does change the morale value to a five. And then it allows other friends to use that morale value, 
that's kind of the exception where it's changed. But stalwart does not change your morale. If you're morale six and you take a stalwart attachment, you're not suddenly morale four. You're effectively rolling a morale four, but you're not actually a morale four. You're just you're manipulating the numbers on the face of the dice. Yeah, you, said, you couldn't have said it better myself, Brett. You said that very well. That that sounds about right, then? Mm-hmm. Uh, they give you an example here in the book. The 2d6, you rolled uh, less than a 6. You failed. You took some wounds. Um, then we go into some uh, examples with the hits and, and things like that. So I think we're pretty good on that. There's not really much more to cover there, right? No, not at all. And it, and it gives you a little, you know, highlight circle of where the morale stat is on your card, but uh, I think most people would know that. Okay. So the biggest thing to take away from that is how to count your modifiers. That will include uh, melee attacks, and it seems like maybe I did talk about this because I think, I think I talked about how plus one to defense and then, like, minus three yeah, if, even if I said it, I'll say it again. So the, another situation where that comes up with, let's say that I have Sundering, and you are a four-plus defense. Um, so I attack you in the rear. That's a full minus three to your roll. You have a card or some other benefit that gives you plus one to your save. So if you're not doing the morale modifiers properly, you can think, okay, well, you took away three. That makes my armor a six. My armor can't get worse than a six. So now my plus one makes me a five. Eh, that's not how it works, though, because you will take your plus one, add it to my minus three to give a total of minus two, effectively keeping you at a six. So just kind of going into that, and I think we can move on if you don't have anything else to add about these modifiers. No, nothing there. Okay, so now we're going to the tactics board and non-combat units. Uh, the tactics board, I think of the tactics board and the tactics deck as magic. Um, some people will slap you across the face if you say that because only Melisandre uses magic and things like this. But this, for me, in, in a typical war game setting or a fantasy setting, this is like magic. It's not magic, but it's, it's that little extra bit um, that feels like you're buffing and debuffing by way of spells, but they're with cards and the tactics board. Uh, would you agree with that coming from a Warhammer? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, they've made it thematically make sense within the Song of Ice and Fire universe, right? That it's tactics and that it's, you know, these non-combat units, these, these personalities um, working behind the scenes and kind of, you know, with intrigue at court um, to make things happen that will inevitably affect the combat that's happening on the board. It's like you said, magic phase, psychic phase. It's that sort of external presence, uh, the game within the game, right? Yep. And I I am kind of a, a suck-up to the developers sometimes, uh, and I'm going to do it again here. The, I just can't compliment enough how well they pulled this design off. Um, when I first got into it, coming from Warhammer, I was skeptical. I didn't think I was going to like it. Um, I have come completely around from that. This is... This game basically makes me kind of turn my nose up to other game systems because I feel like, and I've tried them, but I feel like they are inferior to what this game brings. Even Warhammer. I still tinker around with the Ninth Age a little bit, but I treat Warhammer strictly as a fun 
beer and pretzels type of game. Um, you know me well. I'm a very competitive gamer. But mm-hmm. all of that com- all of that competition goes to this game. I don't have the competitive spirit for the other games because, not to sound like a jerk, but I just think their system is inferior to what A Song of Ice and Fire is. Oh, I completely agree. And I feel like that's if there's one thing that I preach on and when I try to really sell this game to new players, it's the system. Like, trust the system. The core foundation of this game is is phenomenal compared to any other rank of flight game out there compared to a lot of other non-rank of flight games that are out there. And I think, you know, one testament to the game design is that this tactics board, as far as I know, Brett, has has not been changed since the release of the game. Is that right? You're right. It has not changed at all. It has been exactly the same. It has stood up to every edition, and I can't see a scenario where it ever changes. Um, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have a single change that I would suggest to it. I think the way nope. they incorporate it is perfect. The only thing that was maybe slightly problematic before was when panic tests did the difference was the number of wounds. So if, mm-hmm. you didn't have, if you didn't have like Cersei or some way to modify morale, the crown test was very, I won't say useless, but it wasn't super beneficial to other armies. But now that you just need them to fail by one to do D3 wounds to them, uh, the crown zone is, is quite scary, actually. I, I, hate, I hate crowns up. I hate, I don't ever want to roll a crowns up. They yeah, are. I've been playing. I've been playing Jorah lately, and every time my opponent takes a crown, I I, I clinch a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So this this gives you a little bit of a breakdown on what these are, um, on what they're representing. But we can go ahead and explain what the spot actually does as well. So mm-hmm. the crown zone is meant to represent political manipulation and subterfuge. I view it as like your reaching out to whoever's the king or whoever is in control of the Iron Throne, you're reaching out to them for some kind of help. And whether they're, you know, sending a threatening letter or something like that, they're they're making your opponent afraid of that power. So it is represented by one enemy combat, one enemy must make a panic test and suffers minus one to their role. So the interesting thing here, the language, they must take a panic test. It's not optional. And it's only an enemy. So the reason I say that is because there are some of these zones that, as we get into them, you can actually manipulate those a little bit to do stuff to your opponent. So, um, But the crown zone, you cannot force a test on your own unit, which would be beneficial for something like a unit that has Dauntless and a very high morale. Maybe you don't have any other way to heal them, and you'd love to just be able to put a panic test on them to heal a wound. Unfortunately, you can't. Language specifies enemy, and and then the must. Yeah, completely agree. I think of a lot of scenarios where I might want to just take a panic test if, like, I have bribery on my own unit and just want to force the morale test uh, to get it off. Mm -hmm. There it is. Perfect. The bribery can be a real pain in the butt. Uh, if it's on you and your opponent's refusing to make you take any panic or morale test, you would give anything to be able to knock that thing off with a, a self-induced panic test. Um, so we'll get more into the crown, the best times to use the crown, as we develop more into the strategies. When we get in more into playing the game and some of those uh, 
political board plays that you're going to see, we can better explain to you how to get the most out of the comp, out of the wealth, out of the crown zone. Jeez. Well, <laughs> the wealth yeah, so represents. The, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Now you. I was going to I was going to give you a break and read for you. So the wealth zone represents your house using its resources to bring reinforcements to, to the battle. So uh, wealth, you know, when I think of wealth, I think of, okay, you know, Lannisters, they own Casterly Rock, right? They've, they've got the gold, they've got the financial backing. And, um, and then you also think of a faction like Greyjoys, but how they get their wealth is totally different, right? They're taking everybody else's wealth. Um, and then your mercenary factions have a lot of interplay with the wealth zone. So it's, it's exactly what it stands for, right? It's the, it's the interaction of coin between these units and these factions as it changes hands. Um, but it's represented in the battlefield from the tactic zone as restore up to three wounds and remove one condition token from one unit. Yep. And I'll take that and I'll point out two things. Restore up to three wounds. So you don't have to restore a full three. Um, I know in the previous version of the game, there was a reason to restore one or two wounds. Uh, when I played Alistair from Night's Watch, he had the card um, Pathetic Attempt. And in order to trigger that card, they had to fail to wipe out a rank. So if I was at seven wounds or six wounds or something, and I, if I went up to nine, they would only have to take one wound off to wipe a rank, right? So in that case, it was beneficial to just heal up and not give them that one little wound on the last rank. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think now. You, I could see a scenario where you use that to abuse Lash Out. So you know that you're going to be attacked uh, and you want them to take two ranks off so that you get the full damage from Lash Out, but you're afraid you're going to get wiped. So again, the same kind of situation. Maybe instead of healing up to nine, you just heal up to eight just to make mm-hmm. sure that you, just to make sure that Lash Out happens no matter what. So there In are like, situations. Sh- Shaggy Dog and Veramir, I'm thinking of, uh, they, you know, obviously get more attack dice, the more damage that they have. And, and if you want to keep a certain number of attack dice, maybe you don't heal them all the way up to full. Or um, if, if healing three is going to put you at one guy left on a rank and you're playing against Greyjoys, you don't want to make pillage, you know, too easy for them to gain. Maybe you only heal two. But, but like you said, it's restore up to three um, and remove a one condition token. And the important thing to keep in mind, too, is that these both have to happen from the same unit. Yep. Very good point. Um, a lot of times you've got a unit that's down in wounds and a unit that has a condition token, and it'd be great to be able to split that effect up, but you can't. So, um, cool. Uh, good to point that out. The other thing, the other interesting thing with this zone is it doesn't specify a friendly combat unit. So you can actually target an enemy with the wealth. And you're going to say, well, why would you ever want to do that, Brett? There are a couple of situations. Uh, Free Folk in particular in Feast for Crows love to send raiders onto a unit of stakes, kill them, and generate a corpse pile behind them in their side of the field. You can actually heal their raiders to prevent them from doing that. You can do the same thing to freedmen to prevent them from healing. But now that we've got Martells in the game, since it says up to three, you can select that unit to be healed zero, and you can trigger Roynish Vengeance 
the secondary effect of the card and deal them a wound by, by using the well zone. And there are instances where that one wound is huge. Uh, you, you'll find as you're playing this game, there's a number of times where you've got a unit that's down to like one wound and it's just retreating back, retreating back. Maybe it's on the other side of the map, holding on to an objective with everything that they have and you just need to get one wound on them. Well, something like this for Martels is a good way to knock that wound off. It can actually be important. <laughs> that's actually pretty funny. I didn't, I didn't know about that one. <laughs> All right, moving on to the tactic zone. So the tactic zone represents communication and strategic plotting across the battlefield. This is basically like, you know, representing um, messengers traveling, you know, letters back and forth between the front lines to the commanders who are making the orders, right, and helping them make better combat decisions. So it's represented by uh, draw two tactics cards and place any one condition token on an enemy unit. pretty straightforward. Uh, there's no interaction with your opponent other than the fact that you are placing a condition token on them. So back to that Roynish Vengeance, um, you can place a condition token on a unit if you control the crown and that will deal them a wound. Now, I'll correct myself because there is an important interaction with this one. When you, I, I think, now, it's not in the rule book or in any FAQ, but I think that there should be a sub- a little sub um, addition, an addendum to the rule book, because we know from forum rulings that if an ability is ever canceled, the entire, or if any effect is ever canceled, the entire effect is canceled. So mm -hmm. there could be a situation where you play something like a flayed man has no secrets. It wouldn't be the most ideal play, but you could do it. And if you play a Flayed Men Has No Secrets when they place that condition token on you, they wouldn't be able to draw the cards either. So I think what they need to add to the rulebook or just some kind of way get that out there, whenever you're resolving something, I think you need to kind of declare everything first. So when you go to the tactic zone, I think you should say, well, I'm going to be drawing my two cards and I'm going to target this unit with this condition token and then if they're able to cancel it well then you never draw the cards because there's kind of an awkward situation where if i draw my cards and look at them and then you cancel that effect i would have to put the cards back but then i would know what my next two cards were do you see where i'm going with that absolutely and that falls into you know declaring your effects giving your opponent a reasonable amount of time to respond and then performing those effects, right? And it could be in any order. You could draw the two tactics cards and put the condition token or do the token and then draw your cards. But uh, when you claim that zone and you use it just as it's written, um, you should choose the target for the condition token if you're going to choose a target at all, because it is, uh, is it not a may? Is it, it's a draw two tactics yeah, cards and place one condition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, you know, you declare your targets and allow them to respond. And, and I completely agree. So if a card like Adam Marbrand's charismatic leadership, um, where yep. he can take if his unit is targeted by a tactic zone, takes a morale test, then on a successful pass, uh, can cancel the effect of a tactic zone. If he cancels you using a condition token on an enemy unit, and he's also canceling your ability to draw those two tactics cards. So it's important to get into a good habit of declaring, allowing your opponent to respond, 
and then going through the ability. Yep. I, I agree. And uh, we'll get more into that when we cover the simultaneous action section. So it's just a mm-hmm. good habit to get into. Um, just declare what you're doing and, and then give the appropriate time to respond. Absolutely. So, the combat zone. The combat zone represents orders to take aggressive actions on the battlefield. I love the way that's worded. Take aggressive <laughs> actions. <laughs> um, generally, it's just making a free melee attack or a ranged attack. So uh, I've seen that question pop up every now, and it, every now and then. Can I claim the swords and make a melee attack or, and make a ranged attack? Yeah, absolutely you can. An attack is an attack. Sometimes it will specify ranged or melee. But if it ever just says may make a free attack, if you've got the option, you can do either. Um, yep. This zone is one of the, I mean, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's probably the most popular zone. Um, it's debatably the best um, if you're playing aggressively. Um, but it's, it's a very key zone to either Take it, even if it's not to your benefit, just to keep your opponent from having it, because that free attack is devastating. So this is, starting in round two and three on when engagement happens, this tends to be the zone that's very high traffic. This is the one that everybody wants to get their hands on. And generally, when you're setting up your plays for when you're going to be first player, you're working around the fact that you'll be able to make a free attack. Uh, more into that, as I mentioned, when we get more into the strategy side, but the combat zone phenomenal. Yeah, and I completely agree. And, and it's funny you say it's debatable if it's the best or not, because it really is. And it, it, it you know, it, it, every given scenario is going to be different. And it's, you're going to have to ask yourself, you know, is this really the best thing for me? Because if the free attack that you make doesn't do more than three wounds, well, then they take the bags and they cancel or maybe even get a bigger benefit than you actually did <laughs> with your sword. So, it's, this is the kind of great design that we're talking about when it comes to these five zones. Mm-hmm. What I have actually found lately in the games that I've been playing um, is the next zone. I think, I think that the, the maneuver zone might be, the maneuver retreat zone might be the best. It's right, there mm-hmm. with, it's right there with the attack for me. I think that zone is so important. Um, yeah, it's super duper duper. It's super key. If you want to go ahead and break that one down, Mr. Stock Boy, you love your horse. Oh, I love it. Zone. I love this zone. I really do think that this zone is either a game winner or a game loser based on whether you prioritize it or not. Uh, so the maneuver zone represents orders to swiftly advance across the battlefield, and it's represented by one friendly unit may make a free maneuver or retreat action. And either of those actions, um, can be a game changer. I mean, we, the reason we love rank and flank games is because we love movement. We love positioning and we love, um, you know, using those to our advantage to win games, games against opponents who may be playing, you know, better, stronger uh, things than we are, but because your decisions as a player uh, to put yourself in a better position, it it makes it more likely, you know, that you're going to take advantage and and win the game. And so this zone to me uh, is, is masterful at that. And the better you get with your own movement and positioning, um, the better you can utilize this zone in particular uh, to change the loss into a win. You know, one more can I say about it? (laughs) 
Yep, I, I'm I'm with you. And the reason that I think it, it is so so clutch and so important is because a lot of armies don't have movement tricks. As the game progresses and you know, depending on how the game's flowing and all of that is how important this zone is. But you can find yourself in a position where all you have to do is live to win the game. That's all you have to do. Mm-hmm. And if they can't get to you, then they probably can't kill you. So a lot of times their only course of getting to you is to take the maneuvers out. If you take that away from them, it can be, hey, I just won the game. Like maybe I gave you a free attack somewhere else and maybe I lost a unit, but my most key unit that I needed to stay alive to win is safe. And that's, that's the game. Um, and, and it's huge. Against I've been playing a lot of Baratheons, and uh, Baratheons don't really have movement tricks. Baratheons tend to like infantry, and their house cavalry is slow if you're playing anything other than the Riders of Highgarden. Uh, I have come to really appreciate the maneuver zone, and, and that's as playing Baratheons. So on the flip side to that, I know from playing Baratheons how important the maneuver zone was to me. So when I play against Baratheons, I also have a tendency to take it away from them because I know that if I don't even give them the option, then they're going to have a very hard time getting to me or shuffling their units around because Baratheons are big and slow. I think it's super key. Yeah, it really is. And like you brought up a good point because when you take the maneuver zone, you take it away from your opponent. And that right there is, you know, even if you don't necessarily need to go anywhere, if you can deny them that maneuverability, um, it can be just as important. Yep. Uh, because with line of sight, if, you, if you're in a spot where that unit can't see you, they can't charge you. If you know that they have no movement tricks, like they can't do a shift to get you in line of sight, they don't have like a cunning ploy to be able to turn around off of someone else's activation, then you know that that unit is not charging you this route. Not only does that keep you from taking any damage, but now as we get into the flow of the game later and we get into the the priorities of things that you need to do, if I've taken the horse, this infantry unit can't see me. I know for 100% fact that they have no possible way to turn around, that unit that's sitting out of their line of sight is not, that can be the last thing that I do anything with because I don't necessarily care because they're mm-hmm. not in any danger. So that's, those, those things are big to be able to know that. All good? All good. When a non-combat unit is activated, it only has one action available to it. Moving on to an empty zone of the tactics board. This immediately triggers the effect of the zone as described under it. While on the zone, that NCU controls it, which may trigger effects on other cards. Alternatively, a non-combat unit may choose to forgo performing any action at all during its activation, though this is seldom beneficial. Then it goes into a full tactics board, which I'm going to read because that circles back to when it's seldom beneficial. In the event that an NCU would activate, but there are no remaining empty zones on the tactics board, then that NCU does not move onto the tactics board in, an activation, in its activation end. So essentially what a full tactics board is saying, the, the wording is a little bit weird. It, you might read it as, okay, well, I'm going to activate that NCU, and they can't go onto the board, so that's my turn. Actually, it says in the event that an NCU would activate, uh, but there are no remaining empty zones. The activation ends, so it essentially ends before it ever begins. Uh, yeah, and I'll, if, I'll, if it's cool, I'll jump in real quick because 
this one this one has uh this is the one from the rulebook errata so this is of course from the faq and errata uh which we haven't touched on yet but i'll read this one because it it fully replaces this text box word for word and so on page 20 a full tactics board if the tactics board is full then ncus may no longer be activated that round or until an ability or effect would create an open slot on the tactics board. Yep. Yeah, so the, so the new uh, ruling for this particular um, little text box, the full tactics board, is that if all, the, if all the tactics zones are covered by NCUs, then you can no longer activate an NCU. So you can effectively lose an activation um, if you were not able to pass with an NCU, or if, uh, your opponent covers up the last zone on the tactics board and you still have an unactivated NCU. They just can't activate and they're effectively done uh, for the rest of the round. Yep. And I think this is something that we want to, we want to get into when we go into some of the tactics, because we can explain, you know, the, the importance of quote unquote flipping that NCU or passing with that NCU. Um, we'll get more into that when we get into tactics, but it's definitely something that's mm -hmm. very important. So the other takeaway from this is um, while on that zone, the NCU controls it. So there's a huge difference between claiming and controlling. So I've, ha I've again, I've seen questions on the A Song of Ice and Fire page. If I, excuse me, if I take Peter Baelish to the bags and use the effect of the swords, do I count as controlling the swords? Did I target them with the swords? All, these types of questions. Um, you, whatever zone your NCU is physically on, you control. Whatever zone you physically place them on, you yourself place them on that zone, that's the zone you claim. So there are effects mm -hmm. like Tyrion's false agenda and Alistair Florence's ability that moves NCUs around after a zone is resolved. When you move them to a different zone, they're not claiming it anymore. So they don't get any additional effects. They're simply being moved. Now, if I, for example, um, claim the swords and the, you move me off of the swords onto the crown, I now control the crown. I briefly controlled the swords, but for any other abilities that need the swords, I no longer control it. Mm -hmm. Is there any other shenanigans or tomfoolery you want to add to that? Yeah, it's just important to note that, you know, at the, at the time that you put an NCU on the zone, that is the moment that you are claiming that zone. Anything that has to do with when an NCU claims the zone, including resolving the zone's effect itself, um, that all happens simultaneous. And I know we haven't gotten to simultaneous abilities yet, but that's uh, coming up on the next page. And something to keep in mind uh, that everything kind of happens at once when an NCU claims his own. Yep. Um, and so I guess while we're on this subject, we it's, it's worth covering. Um, so when you claim a zone, even if you replace that zone with a different effect, um, so the reason I'm bringing this up is because of the card bribery and there's additional cards like removing unbowed, unbent, unbroken. If I put, we'll just use Peter because he's the simplest example. If I put Peter Baelish onto the money bag, onto the wealth zone, and I use Peter's ability to switch the effect of the wealth zone to the free attack, and I have my archers make an attack, 
if my archers have bribery on them, they have been targeted by the wealth zone. The wealth mm-hmm. zone has been replaced, but it's still the wealth zone. Similar to the combat zone with removing cards like Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken, and Rising Temps. If I put Peter Baelish onto the, the combat zone and resolve it as the wealth zone, and then I heal that unit, they were still targeted by the combat zone. So there's any number of effects that replace zones, um, like assault orders, for example. You can play assault orders off of the wealth zone and let that unit make a free attack. They've been targeted by the wealth, remove bribery. Um, Illyrio replaces zones with healing. Same thing. Illyrio goes onto the swords, replaces it with his heal effect, target your friendly unit. They would remove any cards that are removed when they're targeted by the combat zone. That's just the way that it works. Yep. And the best way that I think of it is I think of the current tactics board, think of it like a dry erase board, right? And when you put these NCUs on there that have the ability to replace or change the effect, they are effectively wiping off whatever the tactics zone normally says, and they're replacing it with brand new text. So that's what Peter Baelish does, right? He, if he goes on the bag, he wipes off the text that the bag normally says, and he just replaces that text with whatever text from any other zone, right? But it's still, it's still the bags. He's still controlling the bags. He's still using the bags. He's just changing what the actual effect of the bags is. Okay. I don't know if you saw my message. I've got uh, my trainee who's over here getting ready to ask me a question. Just give me two uh-huh. ticks and I'll be right back. You got it. You um, need to move on to influence? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and move on to influence because I think the we covered the very important things there on that mm-hmm. uh with the combat, with the zones, sorry. Uh, so I'll be right back, just a second. You got it. All righty, y'all. So influence. So one of the most common abilities on a non-combat unit are influence abilities. These abilities state when they claim a zone on the tactics board that they attach their card to a combat unit, friend or enemy, causing various effects while attached. Influence abilities have the following rules. A unit may only have one friendly and one enemy influence effect on at any time. So you can have a friendly influence like a Catlin and an enemy influence like Joffrey Baratheon on the same unit. Uh, but you can't have two or more of either type from friendly or enemy. NCU cards attached to units are not attachment cards. So don't get them confused with cards uh, from attachments that you either pay for or like a commander's attachment. All influence effects are removed from a unit during the cleanup phase, and if effect ever causes a combat unit to lose all abilities, it does not include influence abilities unless it's specifically mentioned. So there's a, there's a few um, instances where a combat unit will lose either one or all abilities. It won't have any effect on any influence abilities that are on that unit. So influence abilities are also when an NCU claims a zone. Um, so this happens simultaneously with an NCU actually utilizing a zone. Um, and all you need to know about that for now before we get into simultaneous abilities is that when you claim a zone, you can choose to resolve the zone first, like if you want to take a free maneuver action, or you can resolve the influence first. So if the influence would give you something like plus one move, you could put the influence on your friendly unit first and then resolve the maneuver zone and take a maneuver with plus one move. So you have some flexibility as the active player 
whenever you're taking a zone with an NCU that has an influence ability. Um, and that's just something to keep in mind with how you prioritize or how you um, use your abilities in order. Yeah, and it's super important. So um, one of the biggest things that uh, comes with this is you've got Amon. Amon does healing based on the number of destroyed ranks in the Night's Watch unit. Um, generally, people just do it because they understand how it works. Break it down for you as a new player. You need to understand why it works that way. Why does Amon heal six to an infantry unit when they're at the last rank? That's because when you claim it with Amon, you, you technically need to say, okay, I'm going to resolve Amon's ability first. Amon's going to heal three to this unit because they're at their last rank. I will then resolve the wealth zone, and he'll heal three more. And the reason for that is, is because if you were to do the wealth zone first for whatever reason, you might heal them back up to where they only had two or one destroyed rank. And then at that point, then they're not, they're not healing the three. They would only heal two. So mm-hmm. it's important to know. Um, another situation I can think of, it's probably a little niche, but, uh, with blind Baron, blind Baron falls off if you fail a panic test. So it's really important when, like, if you're playing Greyjoys and you're making a free attack or something like that with a Greyjoy unit, um, that you put blind Baron on after because things like Lannister supremacy, things like Baratheon conviction, can end, they can force you to take a panic test on your turn, uh, also Horrific Visage. So you don't want to place Blind Baron first just in case you fail that panic test from that melee attack because then he'll fall off. So just yeah, a little... It, little it, yeah. yeah, the good rule of thumb is unless your influence is directly going to improve whatever you're about to do with the zone, just hold off. Uh, because like you said, there's a lot of Baratheon examples where I can think of where... You might take the letters, you know, and if you had, say, Catelyn or another NCU that removes a condition token, if you just throw mm-hmm. them on there and then you take the letters and you throw out a condition token and they play Stag's Wit and they throw that yep. condition token right back at you, uh, well, now you can't cleanse it because you've already used your influence ability. So yep. the order of operations can be important. It does get important, and, that, and, and we don't want to overwhelm the listeners. This is probably more of a little bit of a review for veteran players because it's something that you might not consider, right? Mm-hmm. There's like that play with Catlin that you just thought about. It might just slip your mind. You might just say, okay, I'm going to use Catlin. I'm going to take this weakened token off of this unit, and then I'm going to put some token on you, and then they – yeah, it's, it's important. So, yeah, that's a very, very good point with some, someone like Catlin. Now, of course, with these influences, it's, it's always going to be very dependent. So it's, it's good to know that you have the flexibility to choose because, you know, with something like Melisandre, if you can kill them with the Melisandre test, it might change anything that you would do after that. So you might put Melisandre down on a zone and then resolve her first. Um, or an NCU like Nymeria for, um, Nymeria for the Martells. If you're making an attack and you're going to be gaining a bonus, obviously you want to place her first. So uh, it's always going to be situational, but really think about that. Think about the fact that you have the flexibility and really think into how you want to do that. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on to commanders and the tactics deck. So your army commander, each army is led by a powerful individual known as the army commander. 
Your commander is chosen as part of your army construction and determines a number of things about how your army will function on the battlefield. Commanders can be identified by the commander keyword on their stat card and the C on their point cost. Commanders are typically an attachment, but in some rare cases, they might be otherwise, such as Magnemite. This will be noted on their individual stat cards. Commanders function exactly as a unit of their type, except that they also add cards to your tactics deck. Commanders do not cost any points to add to your army, although we now know that there's a couple, uh, Mag in particular, uh, who does have a points cost. Yep, uh, Mag has a points cost, and uh, Doran uh, technically has a point cost because he's an mm-hmm. ACU that comes with an attachment. But um, they did a really good, good, nice job of future-proofing this document. Um, but in, you know... In, in those instances for Mag, they put, I think, in parentheses, you still pay his points cost, even if he's your commander. But the basic thing to take from this is when you're choosing a commander, it's, it really does shape what your army does. It shapes what combat units you want to bring with them, what supporting units you want to bring, what NCUs you want to bring, what attachments you might bring, your entire play style, what mission specifically you want them for. There is a lot to choosing a commander. I think that you should choose, I think you really want to build your list around the commander. So I think you, when you're getting into the game, take a look at the tactics cards. They're probably not going to hit for you the same as they will as you get some experience. Um, when I first jumped into the game, I thought the High Sparrow was the bee's knees, and I thought Gregor was the bee's knees. Uh, I glanced at Tyrion, and I was like, uh, this doesn't seem that great. And then as I got more games and repetitions, I was like, oh, Tyrion. Tyrion is actually the bee's knees. That's the, that's the commander I want. So as you're getting into the game, do yourself a favor with whatever faction slash factions you've chosen, just give every single commander a fair shake. Honestly, just do it. Give yourself those repetitions. See how it changes. And then as you get those, those experiences playing the game, then you'll start to understand some things that the commanders bring. When you're first glancing, you might say, like, oh, emboldened. Oh, well, that's only plus one morale. That's not very good. Then as you get into the game and see just how many times you fail a damn panic test by one, you'll have some more more respect for emboldened. And as you see, like, oh, okay, you know, as you're getting into the game, like, oh, well, I would have passed that war cry if I had emboldened. You know, things like this. Um, You'll start to see them and then circle back to those commanders and have another look. So it's not just the commander's attachment, like, oh, I want to play this commander because the attachment's so good. You need to understand that it, it changes everything. Like, yes, it's uh, probably the most defining decision you can make besides choosing your faction, right? Yep. Yep. And, and again, as I said, my personal recommendation is to build your list around the commander. I don't think you want to build a list with the combat units that you like and then just kind of willy-nilly shove a commander in there because it fits. I think you want to take the, take the commander's strengths and build those supporting pieces to back up those strengths. Mm-hmm. And I always think when I think of this game, I don't think of it as, oh, it's Starks versus Lannister. You know, I, I look at the matchup and say, oh, it's, you know, it's great John versus Kevin. You know, it's, mm-hmm. It really is uh, a commander-centric type of list building. Absolutely, because of the approach, 
the strategy that you need to do, everything changes based on who's commanding that army. Yep. And going into the next page, it affects your tactics deck. So in addition to various units, your army will also make use of a special deck of cards known as the tactics deck, representing the various strategies your faction uses when it goes to war. So this, this diagram is actually very, very important right here because I get asked a lot by new players, you know, where is the trigger? How do I know what my trigger is and when can I play this card? Um, so on the card, you've obviously got the name of the card. Um, and then in the text, it's usually uh, different colored text, but it's right at the top of the card. Uh, and that's the trigger. So each tactics card lists a specific trigger, noting when it can be played. Um, so when the condition in that different colored text is met, um, you can then gain the effect listed on the card. And the effect, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Brett, but I believe the effect is always in black uh, text and the trigger is in some off-color text. Yeah, as far right? as I know, yeah. Yeah, and so the effect of the card uh, lists a specific effect. Additionally, many tactics cards gain additional benefits if you control specific zones on the tactics board. Uh, you'll go in to read your tactics deck is constructed of seven different faction tactics cards determined by your faction and three different commander cards determined by your army commander and two copies of each card combining to form a 20 card tactics deck. Uh, you begin the game with a hand of three tactics cards drawing more as the game goes on. And of course, there's some exceptions, even that paragraph right there. Um, but for the most part, that is the standard. Anything else would just be an exception to the standard. Because the, the, the Targaryen commanders bringing the additional card and dropping a specific card, that's an exception. That's, that's pretty mm -hmm. abnormal. Uh, so far as I know, there... Oh, Davos. Davos has four as well. Yeah, Davos. that's right. Yep. So there, and, there's some exceptions to the rule there. And yeah, then Magna and Mighty, then, right? Yep. You've got just mm -hmm. ten, ten new cards. <laughs> ten, and they're all commander cards, uh, yeah. which, which came up in a different game scenario we had played before. Um, but yeah, yeah. But the standard, like we said, seven faction, three commander, two copies of each. Yep. And then when it, when it, when it speaks to the trigger, um, the unit triggering the tactics card, if any, it, it points that out, is the target of that tactics card. But note that its effect might list, its effect might list additional targets as well. Uh, targeting, again, we need to get our hands on that little flow chart. Targeting mm -hmm. is super confusing, but again, to review, unless it's specifically like a recipient that you choose, something that, that it says like target a unit within such and such, or something like that, you really need to consider if they're actually being targeted or not. So we'll pick on Final Strike because I think this is a card that gives gives particularly newer players some fits. So let's go to the final strike tactics card, and then we'll kind of break down what triggers it, who's the target, and all of these things. Because this one's definitely a weird one, but it, it, it'll kind of emphasize why it's important to really think about it and break it down. Unfortunately, um, as of now, we don't have a glossary or anything that specifically says this this card targets defender and attacker mm -hmm. or something like that. So for now, we've got to navigate our way through it. We're here to help you as much as we can. Uh, but final strike. After an enemy completes a melee attack, each wound the defender suffered, the attacker suffers one hit. 
if you control the crowns, the attacker suffers minus one to the defense rolls against those hits. So, <clears throat> after an enemy completes a melee attack. So the enemy is what triggers this card. For each wound the defender suffered, the attacker suffers one hit. You might think that because the defender is mentioned in this card that they're a target. They are not actually a target because this isn't something... Once this card is triggered, you don't have a choice. The the defender is is the defender. You, you, you don't choose a defender in that instance. So something like Winter is Coming, which prevents cards that target the defender... <coughs> excuse me. It will not stop Final Strike because the defender is never actually a target. The attacker is the target, and the defender's just there. And it, it happens whether you don't get to choose that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It, yeah, and a good example of a card that does name a target in the actual ability text would be a card like Warcry. So Warcry states uh, in its trigger when a friendly combat unit activates. So right there, the friendly combat unit, um, they are a target because they are named in the trigger. It then says a unit performs one morale test on a success targets one enemy in long range. It becomes panicked and vulnerable. So because it specifically says target one enemy, they also become a target of this card. So there's two targets for this card. The the friendly unit that triggers the card and the enemy unit that is targeted by the ability of the card. Yeah, and it gets... It gets interesting. Um, so it's 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 definitely something you're gonna. There's so many like situations. Uh, unfortunately, I I I mean I don't want to say unfortunately, but I do kind of say unfortunately. There's a lot of cases where you're just gonna have to handle it case by case. Um, you're gonna have to really put some thought into it and maybe even go back and reference the rule book until you get some ideas. And again, we have that flow chart. I need to actually figure out who made it and then get a copy of that mm-hmm. so that I can post it on the small council page uh, so that it's there for you to reference. But again, it's, it's not immediately obvious a lot of the times, So it's just something that you're going to have to navigate through. Uh, it might cause some debates, but there's, there's resources in the community. So feel free to reach out and ask these questions um, and, and let your mates know, even if they're not listening to this podcast or if you are, and there's something that comes up outside of the examples we've given, feel free to reach out to Small Council Radio or to the Facebook page or to Discord for help. Yep. All right, moving on real quick. So playing of tactics cards, there's two paragraphs right here, and they're both, they're both pretty important in their own way, but it's important that they're stated in the rulebook somewhere. So each tactics card lists a specific trigger at the top showing when the card can be played, and once the card is played, it's placed in your deck discard pile face up. The discard pile is open information for all players. Get on that? Yep. Uh, just It's important to note um, that the, oh, the discard pile is open information. There, mm-hmm. are, there are abilities and, and effects that will allow you to recycle a card from the discard pile. You can't make that a secret. You, you, whether you announce it or your opponent wants to see what you're doing, you can't say like, okay, well, I'm going to play this effect and I'm going to go get a card from my discard pile. Uh, I don't want you to know what it is. Hypothetically, your opponent has the option to see at all times what's in your discard pile, so he would know what's missing. 
So the best practice, especially for good sportsmanship, is when you're bringing something back from the dead pile, just tell your opponent what you're bringing back. Um, yep. Don't try to make it. Don't try to make it a little game. Um, it's not necessarily cheating. Technically, your opponent should know, but it's it's very much a courtesy since they have the ability to know and to speed things along. Just tell them what you're bringing back. Uh, yeah, and, and, then, and if you have someone no who problem. has a problem with it, like just just point them to page 21. This is this is why I think it's important that it's stated. That one sentence uh, can save a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, because it's public information. So your opponent mm-hmm. can say, okay, well, you know, put that card back down, and I'm going to write down every single card that's in your discard pile. Then I'm going to go back and look and start crossing them off, and I'll know which one you took back. Or you can just tell me what it is, and we can speed the game, you know. Yep. It, it, it's kind of like that. There's no reason to be like an attitude and temperamental about it, but that's literally what they have the option to do. So instead of dragging the game out longer than it needs to be for no reason, just tell them the card that you pull it. It doesn't yeah. say that you have to, but this paragraph pretty much implies and says that you do have to. So. Yeah. And you might as well save everybody some time and, and get back to the fun. Uh, this next paragraph says, note that sometimes you might have multiple tactics cards with the same trigger. However, a player may only ever activate one effect for each trigger. So if you have two cards that say when a friendly unit is making a melee attack, you can only play one of those cards. And it goes into, on the next column over, uh, an additional rules. And just since it's here, we'll go ahead and mention this as well. A player can check distances at any time for any reason. So you can pre-measure any time for any reason. You don't need a reason. Uh, for your opponent to allow you to pre-measure, you can do so at any time. All right, so the timing conflicts of orders and tactics cards. So sometimes a player will have multiple tactics cards or orders abilities with the same trigger, such as when a friendly unit attacks or start of the round. In these situations, a player may only ever use one order or one tactics card in response to that trigger. Anything to add to that, Brett? Uh, so with this one, again, it's, it's kind of similar to targeting. It's not as egregious. I don't think it's, it's not quite as annoying or as rules lawyering. And, and I don't mean rules lawyering in the negative sense, but a lot of times with targeting, you, you really have to break it down. So it almost feels like you're being a lawyer, but something similar can happen with cards that have the same trigger because they might be worded slightly differently. Um, after an enemy completes a melee attack, after a friendly unit is attacked. I think those are two triggers. They're actually the Mm -hmm. same trigger. They're actually the same trigger. They're just not worded identical. Now, this is something that I struggled with when I got into the game. So I'm telling you this because it's important. I thought that they had to be worded exactly the same. So in previous version of the game, before these things were cleaned up, you had a lot of things that were just like very weird, closely worded, similarly worded, but they ended up being the same trigger. And I remember there being a lot of debate about now his watch is ended and watcher on the wall and things like that. Like, well, can I play watch is ended when the unit dies and then play uh, watcher on the wall after the attack is completed or is it the same? Because to me, it felt like it was the same. And anyway, some of these things got cleaned up. But my point is you just, just read the trigger and the timing and see if it's the same timing, just wearing a different hat, you know, like Mm -hmm. they will be very, they will be the exact same timing with a different trigger wording. Um, I'm trying to think. So I think 
something like Final Strike and uh, Sentinel for like the Dragonstone Noble are worded differently, but they're the same trigger. I think one is after an yes. enemy completes a melee attack, and then I think the other one is after another friendly unit is attacked, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyway, same, same trigger, different wording. Yep, and that that's the only that's the point that I want to make. That's the only point I'm making there, is that you need to consider the timing by looking back, especially if it's related to an attack. Look back to that chart that tells you exactly how to resolve attack steps in order, because each one of those gives you a different trigger window. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm good. The only thing I'll add to that too is that this is specifically for orders and tactics cards. This is not for all kinds of abilities. So if you have two or three abilities that share a trigger window with a tactics card, you can still play one tactics card or order, either one, choose one, um, and your other three abilities, as long as they are not a tactics card or an order. Uh, so for example, if you have a start of turn tactics card, you could also use a start of turn NCU ability. Yep. And yes, when sir. you use simultaneous abilities like that, it goes into the next paragraph and it tells you how to resolve those. Mm-hmm. All right, so simultaneous actions. Situations may arrive where both players wish to trigger an effect or play a card at the same time, or multiple effects would trigger simultaneously. When this happens, they are resolved in the following order. If all effects are controlled by the same player, they may choose the order in which they resolve. That goes back to when we talked about the influence abilities and claiming the tactics zone. Uh, if, if the effects are all controlled by different players, the player whose turn it is will have the first opportunity to trigger their effect. If they choose not to trigger any effects, then their opponent will get the opportunity to act- activate their effects. Once the player whose turn it is passes to their opponent, they may not respond with their effects. They've given up the chance to do so. And once both players have declared any effects they wish to trigger, those effects will then be resolved, beginning with the player whose turn it is resolving their effect first, followed by their opponent. Yep. So that, that becomes important because, for example, and, and this, is, this is an important thing even more so than what's on the paper as it applies to the game because a lot of times, you, you know, you, you kind of get into a hurry with the game and you can telegraph your move, and you can do it by accident. So um, this gives examples, but I'm going I'm to use some different examples. I'm going to use some real game experiences that you'll see, given what's popular and what you're going to see in the meta. Uh, I'm playing Martell. I have a Martell Spearman unit that can shift a friendly unit on an enemy turn. So let's say that you and I are playing Lucas, and you're going first. And, uh, you know, you're, you're the you're the it's your turn i'm in a hurry and i i I just slip it out and i I blurt it out before you declare anything and i say i have a start a turn order that i want to use and then it's like oh well it's your turn you should have declared first now i've just told you what my intent is and i kind of telegraph to you that i plan to use that shift what needs to happen is um i play with a guy named inline on Discord and stats. His actual name's Richard Schultz. He's a Canadian player. Really great guy, Lannister player. He is in such a habit. It's it's almost redundant when you play him, but it's a good habit that he's into. At the start of every single turn, he will ask you if you have a start of turn you want to trigger. If he's the first player, he's gonna he does that to stop you from doing what I just said. 
He's going to say, mm-hmm. do you have a, do you have any triggers that you want to order? And then he'll pause and he'll, he'll say, you know, like I have something because I have something that I want to do first, then you need to declare yours and then we'll resolve them. So that that's important because let's, because if you're the first player and you don't say anything before you start, I might say, do you have anything start of turn that you want to do because you need to do it first? Now you say, no, then I declare and do my shift. You can't then retroactively go back and say, oh, well, I was totally going to play swift reposition so that you didn't shift out of my charge range. You know, that's why that stuff exists. And those rules are important because if you do it out of order, it, it can get kind of gamey, whether it's intentional or not. And I never want to be in a position where I'm second guessing my opponent. So I just try not to make those mistakes. Yeah, that's a good habit to get into. And in and, and our local meadow, we always just, like, I start every turn by saying, you know, start of turn, I have nothing. That, that's yep. a phrase I say, you know, 90% of the time, unless I actually have something to play. And then I say, I activate X, you know, and then I pause. And, and you know, if it's an NCU, I give them time to, to play abilities before I take a zone. Whereas, you know, in other places I've seen, uh, someone just might stand there, not say anything. They're thinking for a moment, thinking for a moment. And then they grab an NCU and they put them on the storage. And then we got to say, okay, wait, back up. Did you have this? Did you have that? Start of turn, start of round. Um, it's a good habit to get into to know when these triggers are and, and to just verbally say pass, you know, to your opponent before you move forward. Yep. And if you're a veteran that's listening to this kind of for a brush up and a review, if you're a veteran that's, li- veteran that's listening to this and you're teaching new players, this is something that I 100% struggle with. I have guys in indie that are getting back into the game. I have guys in indie that don't play as much as I do. I play a crap ton. I play on TTS every opportunity I get. So sometimes I take it for granted that my opponent doesn't know, and I just start doing stuff. And it, it gets overwhelming for them, and they, they start to wonder, well, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Sometimes the best thing that you can do, especially if it's not at a competitive event, but even sometimes at a competitive event, if you can sense that the player is a little bit less experienced, just slow the game down a little bit and help them through these processes. You might even give them that tip, like, okay, like before the game, you might say, hey, I'm a Lannister player. I have a ton of things that happen when you activate something, start of turns, start of my turn, start of your turn. Let's just slow it down a little bit and give me an opportunity to react. Because you don't, again, it circles back to you don't ever want to be in a position where either you feel like your opponent is being gamey or you've given them the opportunity that they might think that you're being gamey. So it, that goes back to like Amon, for example. If I'm playing Lan- Lannisters and you're, you're super fast playing and you activate Amon and then you just start healing units, but I had an intrigue to stop him, well, now I know which unit you were going to heal because you played fast and maybe I was thinking you were going to heal this unit and now we've got a mess, right? Because it's like, well, mm-hmm. I have intrigue. You kind of skipped my trigger. Now I know that you're doing something different from what I expected. Uh, I was totally going to play intrigue. Now you've telegraphed what you're doing. Maybe I don't anymore, but that's kind of bad on me. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to play this intrigue. But in, in the future, you know, give me the opportunity so that we're not in this situation. Yep. Totally agree. Cool. Happy with that. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to page 22. And we can go through these pretty quickly um, without yeah, much comment because these, yeah, these are pretty standard. Um, 
So we'll go over rerolls. So numerous effects might allow for a dice to be rerolled. Um, a dice may over only be forced to be rerolled once by each player. Uh, if both players have an effect, they would like to cause a die to be rerolled. The, the player whose turn it is will be the first to declare and utilize their effect. That's important. Um, once the new results have been generated, their opponent may opt to utilize their effects. Previous results from a rerolled dice are discarded and have no effect on gameplay, being replaced by the new result entirely. So, uh, real quick, player whose turn it is will first declare and utilize their effect. Occasionally, you can have uh, you can have a scenario where you know you are attacking on an opponent's turn, right? And yep. if they had something to force you to reroll your attack dice they would have to do so um, first. And then if you had an ability, like a charge bonus, to reroll your attack dice, you would get to use that second. So that's, uh, that's an exception to the norm, right? So it's important to keep track whose player turn it is when you're resolving reroll effects. Yep, that happens with all of the tokens. Um, and that's mm -hmm. the point that I was going to make. It's important to take note of whose turn it is when these out of turn sequences kind of happen and skew the order. Uh, so, for example, like set for charge. It's my turn. I charge you. I'm vulnerable. You play set for charge. You score five hits. It's my turn. If I have a shield of the realms of men or some such card that will let me reroll my, fa my failed save, I have to roll them first, and then you use the vulnerable. That's the opposite of how it normally is. Uh, and that's, that's the case for every single condition token. You can take panic tests on your own turn or their turn. You can be weakened on your turn or their turn vulnerable as well. So just remember whose turn it is, and it can kind of screw up the typical order of how you would think things go. Yep. And ability stacking and loss of abilities. Sometimes a unit will be granted an ability it already has, such as playing a tactics card oh, that grants thundering. Yeah. Got to, got to interrupt you. I'm sorry. No, this no, no. Other point, totally this, this other point is super important, and they've put mm -hmm. it in there for a reason. Previous results from a rerolled die are discarded and have no effect on gameplay, being replaced by the new results entirely. The reason for that is because you have something like Roinish Vengeance. Every attack die roll of a one generates a wound. I can see situations where players might think, okay, well, in your initial roll, um, you rolled four ones, and then you rerolled them, and you ended up with two ones, uh, so you take six wounds. No. The, the ones that got re-rolled, they don't count anymore. It's only the final result after every re-roll is applied. So I've, had, I've seen that one come up. Like, hey, my opponent mm -hmm. charged, he rolled, he rolled four ones, then he re-rolled those ones, and he ended up with two ones, then I weakened him, and the final result was four ones. So does he take ten wounds, six wounds, four wounds? And the answer is four wounds. The final result after all the reasons. I won't interrupt you again. No, no, that was good, and that, that was all totally valid, and I've seen that question come up from new players before, too, especially for things like Counter-Strike. Um, yeah, you don't count any results until all rerolls have been uh, used, and whatever the final result is, is the result that you use. Yep. So ability stacking and loss of ability, sometimes a unit will be granted an ability it already has, such as playing a tactics card that grants thundering when a unit already has thundering. Effects and abilities with the same name, are not cumulative. Note, however, that some abilities might grant similar effects, but do not have the same name. In these cases, the effects are cumulative. Additionally, when sometimes, uh, sorry, additionally, sometimes an ability or effect will remove abilities from a unit, 
When this happens, the unit loses the effects of all non-innate abilities printed on their card, as well as non-innate abilities and effects from any attachments in the unit. Removing a unit's abilities will have no effect on abilities or effects granted by other sources unless specifically mentioned. So something like an influence ability or a tactics card won't be affected. Perfect. Yeah, there's a lot lot there we could dive into. Um, so innate abilities, I'm not sure if it's been covered in the rulebook yet or not, but an innate ability uh, is signified on a unit card by the heart icon. Yeah, I think it's up when we broke down the units that it says mm -hmm. uh, there will be a heart next to that ability and those are innate. Perfect. Um, and so let me ask you, Brett, so I see this come up a lot. So let's say my unit has like an order ability, like hidden traps and I add an attachment that already has hidden traps, do I get two instances where I can use hidden traps, or does using one turn it off for the other as well? It's, it's completely lost, so they would never stack. So in this mm -hmm. instance, uh, and it applies to like Kevin Lannister going in a unit of Lannister Guardsmen, you won't have two instances of Lannister supremacy. The, the explanation from Michael that was always on the forums was, it was pretty simple. Either the unit has the ability or it doesn't. It's that simple. Either mm -hmm. it has hidden traps or it doesn't have hidden traps. It doesn't have two hidden traps. It either has hidden traps or it doesn't have hidden traps. If it doesn't have hidden traps and you add hidden traps to it, now it does. If it has hidden traps and you add hidden traps to it, it still has hidden traps. One instance. Um, unless it's specifically mentioned that it applies to multiple things, uh, particularly with orders, it's always just going to be the one instance because they won't stack to create. The same thing happens with attached cards like Shield of the Realms of Men. If I have two Shield of the Realms of Men on a, on a unit, do I block two hits? No, you only block one because those, those effects never stack. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you play Shield of the Realms of Men for the reroll and attach the card anyway? Sure. You can have two Shields of the Realms of Men on a card if you want to, on a unit if you want to, because there's ways to move vows in the Night's Watch army. You can do it. You can put two on there. You can play Winner's Might to get Thundering on a unit that already has Thundering. If you want the other effects, uh, they just won't gain double Thundering. So that's the important little tidbit there. It doesn't mean that you can't do it. You can put Mira Reed in a unit of Cranningman Trappers if you want. Um, she's just not really going to do anything because she gives them hidden traps that they already have, and she gives them the Cranningman affiliation that they already have. But you can you want to do it <laughs> <laughs> you know, thematically sure why yeah. not <laughs> sure i have the point i'll do it yeah uh but i mean there's nothing to stop you from doing it it's just simply saying that they won't stack they won't double up thundering on top of thundering doesn't give you minus two but it mentions other sources so thundering and flank is going to give you minus two thundering and rear is going to give you minus three being in range of two weirwood trees is not going to give you plus two but having emboldened and the weirwood tree is going to give you plus two. Stalwart, another source of embolden in the weirwood tree is going to give you plus four. And then the same works for all of the negative modifiers. That's all it's saying. Um, mm -hmm. Flank is pseudo sundering. It's not actually sundering. I, I think we nailed that one. Um, <laughs> moving on to wounds. So some units might have abilities that state each model in the unit has multiple wounds. Each ability will also state how many wounds of each of these, each of these models has. 
When this unit suffers wounds, they are distributed exactly as normal, except each model is only removed when it suffers the listed amount of wounds. Wounds cannot be spread across multiple models in a unit. Whole models must be removed. If, this, if the units with wounds are ever healed, wounds would be first removed from existing models. If there are no currently wounded models and models have been destroyed in the unit, then a model is restored to the unit uh, with wounds based on however much it was healed. I actually think this paragraph, it, these two paragraphs are huge um, that they're included uh, because although they seem very simplistic, if you've ever played Warhammer 40K, uh, a specific uh, edition of Warhammer 40K, there was this meta of wound sharing. Um, you might take 10 models that have two wounds each, but you'd take the first, you know, nine wounds or 10 wounds and you'd spread them out one each among your 10 models so that each of these 10 models had only suffered one wound. And it wasn't until the 11th wound was done on the unit that you would actually remove a model. Um, yep. And that was bad. It was not intended, but they didn't have a paragraph like the Song of Ice and Fire rule book does that specifically states that how wounds must be carried and how they must be distributed. Yep. And I think the the same thing happened a little bit in Warhammer Fantasy as well. Particularly you had monstrous infantry and monstrous cavalry that had like three or four wounds each. So I think that's that you you nailed it. That's that's exactly why they've put that in there. Um they don't want you distributing wounds to your cavalry to keep full ranks. You know, so if that was the case, you would have to do nine wounds before a model was actually removed, and that would be ludicrous. So good deal, good deal that mm -hmm. they took care of that one. So, um, yeah, that's basically all it's saying. Um, we'll go to orders. Orders are powerful abilities that may be activated only once per round. Each order lists a specific trigger, no noting when it can be activated. It is important to note that triggers are based off of gameplay events and steps, not the specific wording of the trigger. The unit with the order is the target of that, that order, if any, but note that its effect might list additional targets as well. Again, we go back to the targeting. Uh, this is a very good thing to add because I think prior to this, this was a 2021 addition with orders. I don't think it used to say that because you had the question before, like, well, does this order actually target this unit or does it just happen? So it's, it's good. Now you know. No matter what, the order is always targeting the unit that it comes from. That's, that's good to know. So if you're playing against Lannisters and you want to stop Lannister supremacy with, like, Barris and Selmy, just put Selmy on the unit that has Lannister supremacy, and you'll know that you can always remove Selmy and cancel supremacy from that unit. Yeah, that's a very simplistic way to handle it, and I think that that's something easy to remember. The unit that yep. triggers the order is the target. They're always the target. And then you get into some of those really wonky ones like... Uh, the ones that we discussed, like martial training. Martial training targets the unit that's making the attack. An effect of that is that the defender becomes vulnerable, but the defender is never actually targeted because you don't get to choose. It just says the defender becomes vulnerable. You don't get to choose to put the vulnerable on them or not. Um, there could be an instance where you want to, like with the aforementioned stag's wit, but you can't choose. You, you have to put it on them, so then they can put it back on you. You can't avoid yeah. it. It would have to say, say target. Yep. And, and that is important because there, there could be an instance where you feel fine wiping that unit without the vulnerable token and you don't want to be vulnerable for when their buddies come in and punch you in the mouth or when they final strike you. 
but yeah, you don't have a choice. The vulnerable goes. If, if you didn't target them, you don't have a choice. <clears throat> condition tokens. Some abilities and effects might cause condition tokens to be placed on units. There are three primary types of condition tokens, and while they all have their own unique effect, the following rules apply to all of them. You may only have one condition token, condition token of each type at any time. Condition token remains on the unit until they are expended by the enemy player or otherwise removed by an ability or effect. Each token has a specific trigger for when it can be expended, as well as specific effects. Expending a token is optional. Your opponent may choose if they wish to expend the token each time the trigger is met. <clears throat> so a little bit of a mouthful there. You can leave a condition token on them if you want. You don't have to spend it. And no, you can't stack three vulnerable tokens on an enemy and make them <laughs> vulnerable vulnerable for three different attacks. It's just they're vulnerable or they aren't, similar to the ability stacking. So, <clears throat> excuse me, something important to note here is that there are effects, uh, specifically um, Stannis's ability, the Watch Marshal from Night's Watch, and a Neutral's card. That allows you to change one condition token to a condition token of any type. If you are panicked and vulnerable, you can change that vulnerable token into a panic token. You are already panicked, so it essentially removes the vulnerable token. That is a thing, is how it works. That's important to know. If you have something that can, that can switch tokens, you can most certainly make one of the tokens into a token that you already have effectively canceling the token. Yep, totally agree. Panicked. Spending this token after an enemy rolls a morale test. All panic tests are morale tests. Again, back to that. Um, to force them to reroll any or all of those dice. So that means if they rolled a three for the damage, you don't have to make them reroll the three with the panic token. If they rolled a six and a one, you don't have to make them reroll the one. You want them to have the one, you can just force the six. Um, this is the same for all of the tokens, so we won't we won't go into them. You can you can change. You can make them re-roll any one, two, or three dice of your choosing. And it works the opposite way if it says you may re-roll any dice uh, to your benefit. <coughs> you can choose to keep the good ones and then re-roll bad ones. Uh, vulnerable is for defensive saves. It's not just when you're attacked. A vulnerable token can be applied to hits that, that are generated without an attack, like the wall hits in Honed and Ready. If they are vulnerable, they fail defensive saves you may use a vulnerable token to make them re-roll. Uh, weakened is after an enemy rolls attack dice, you can force them to re-roll any or all of those dice. I can't really think of an instance where the weakened is applied outside of when they're attacking, uh, but the panic token you can certainly use to try to make them fail a war cry or something. Um, or try to fail a subjugation to power. Yep. You happy with that, Lucas? I am. All right. Note that sometimes an ability or effect will expend a token to grant a different effect than listed above. See that specific ability or effect for more details. So, like the Castle Rock Honor, Honor Guard, they expend a vulnerable token from you and they get buffed. Uh, it just means that unless it specifically says that you get both effects, they won't be re-rolling their dice. You expend that token and do something else. Tactical approach comes to mind as well. You can spend the vulnerable token on them to do D3 wounds, uh, but then you can't use it as a vulnerable token because it's been expended. It's been replaced with another effect. Yep. Happy there? There's other Yeah, there's a lot of other examples, and I think that I think that they get it. And it's self-explanatory now that um, you replace that effect. Cool. 
dice roll and attack die modifiers. This is kind of going into what I told you earlier about adding up all of those effects. Some effects modify a specific die roll, such as thundering. Defender stuff is minus one to defense rolls. It is important to note that these effects modify the result of the roll, but not the actual die facing itself. Getting plus one to hit, as you mentioned, does not turn a five into a six to give you critical blows. It counts as a six because it's plus one to the value, but you're never changing the natural facing of that dice. This means that if you had another effect that specifically triggered on rolls of a six, it refers to the actual die facing and not the roll after modifiers. Additionally, effects can never reduce a die roll below zero or an individual die roll result above six. A unit with a morale stat of six plus is forced to make a panic test and is currently suffering a minus four. They roll a one and a two on their dice. Their result would be zero as their final total cannot be reduced below that. This more or less applied when panic was calculated the old way, uh, because you couldn't send them into negative morale and make them take a bunch of wounds. Sometimes yeah, it's still... Go, go ahead. ahead. No, I'm saying it's, it's still great that it, it specifically lists it as zero, right? And that, that the minimum is not two. It's not two ones. It, it can go down as far as zero. Yep. The, the, the scary thing about this, I guess, depending on how you viewed old panic, is it might be future proofing for another effect, maybe like a Lannister in the future, that does the old panic. Ooh, scary. Because <laughs> they chose to leave it in there. Um, sometimes abilities and effects will have a unit roll its highest attack die value or its lowest attack die value. If both of these effects are on the same unit, the unit will roll its lowest attack die value. This has got to be the most common question that I see on the Facebook page and in yeah, Discord. Yeah, once a week. <laughs> yep. Catlin versus... Catlin versus bribery. Who wins? Always lowest attack dice. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Now, as a point, rolling your lowest attack die value does not affect things that just straight up add dice. So if you've got something like Corn Halfhand who adds plus one attack dice, you roll your lowest attack die value, but you can still add pluses to that. So interestingly, Night's Watch can be forced to roll their lowest attack dice and still throw like seven or eight dice at you. <laughs> it's kind of gets kind of crazy, but it can happen. So uh, that's important to note that you will roll your lowest attack die based on your profile and not that that number is fixed. Yeah, I see this all the time. <laughs> Literally once a week, uh, you know, we get the post on Facebook or on Reddit, Discord, um, someone asking about this, and, and it's nice that they put a definitive answer right here. I agree. Uh, there, there's no debate. There's no, there's no gray. It's there. It's very clear. Lowest dice wins. And yeah, I think that's it. We decided to get to there as a stopping point. Another good hour and a half going over like seven pages. So yeah. it kind of goes, goes to show you that it's simple but complicated at the same time. So um, thanks again for coming on. Uh, I always appreciate doing this with you. Uh, I hope you had a good time going over this, and I hope that you grabbed a couple of things from this just reviewing it, because I I know it's always good to have these things fresh in my mind as well. Yeah, especially for me. You know, i got a tournament coming up again this weekend, our Rocket City tournament, and then I'm going to be the lead judge for the Cherokee Open in North Carolina, so uh, this is something I need to get refreshed on anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's healthy. I think veterans, um, (laughs) unless you're Mickey Arnold, who plays 87 games a day. I don't think he needs to brush up on any of this stuff 
but uh, no. for the most part, a lot of the other veterans, this, this could be a very beneficial show. So I appreciate you going over it with me. Is there anything at all that you want to add for anything in the rule book that we've covered? No, no, not so far. No, this has been really good. It's been a good refresher for me. And man, next time I don't need such a nice inter- introduction. <laughs> oh, you'll always get love from me, Mr. Smiley Face. Um, the only the only thing I'll close out and note for you guys is, is I'm going to circle back to the point that I made again. Uh, when you're a beginner or if you're a, a, a seasoned player that's teaching a beginner, it's really important to just slow the game down and teach these positive habits like Luke and I were discussing at the start of turn. Just make it a habit to always ask before you just start throwing cards down. Um, it can get really overwhelming. Uh, the one thing that I will say, I, I love the game, and I do still think it's very simple, but sometimes the chains of cards that come down, it, it can get overwhelming. And you just need to take that time to explain to your opponent when you're playing it, why you're playing it, not only so that they understand what's happening, but so that they can kind of log it into their memory bank for future games. Like, oh, well, you know, that Baratheon Justice forcing me to take all those panic tests when they own the crowns. Maybe next time when my opponent owns the crowns, maybe I won't dogpile four units onto that, onto that unit and take a chain of like four panic tests, you know. So these things are important. Everything is a teaching opportunity. So just try to slow it down and, and let your newer players take those opportunities and learn something. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Okay, and with that, I think we'll button it up. We're done with the basic rule book. So the next episode of The Watchers on the Wall, we're going to get into list building, army construction, and start on some of the game modes. We, we keep thinking these are going to be shorter than they are, but we're doing our best to make this as clear as mud for you guys. So we'll see you again uh, whenever Luke and I have free time to talk to you again. Uh, but thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful day. and. Get the models and the dice on the table and and get cranking with it. Thanks, y'all. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.